June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You enter the room. What do you see? An armory. An armory. So many guns, so many magazines, stacks and stacks of magazines everywhere, just in suitcases, all neatly stacked, all kinds of monitors and electrical equipment he had in there. Um, it just looked like almost a gun store. Shell casings all over the floor. I could smell the uh, gunpowder that had, that had went off in the room. We were tripping over guns, tripping over long guns inside. I understood early that Facebook was how Donald Trump was going to win. Twitter is how he talked to the people. Facebook was going to be how he won. And Brad Parscale should know. He was a significant figure in the Trump campaign, sending out carefully tailored ads to millions of people on Facebook. So and get this, right with the direct help of Facebook employees. Messages. We had our, their staff embedded inside our offices. What? Yeah. Facebook employees would show up for work every day in our offices. Thousands of people line up every day at Shake Shack, the burger chain Danny Meyer created. When we were at one of them, the wait was almost an hour long. Is it worth it? It's very good. Really? Yeah. Would you like one? It's burgers, it's fries, and it shakes. You haven't reinvented the wheel here. We are as sometimes as mystified as anybody as to what the magic of Shake Shack is. Nerve our go. 
Mostly, Danny Meyer is an innovator. Welcome here. And the newest changes he's pushing may radically alter the way restaurants do business. <laughs> I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. The gunman at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas who shot into a crowd of thousands did it from a room on the 32nd floor. He may have killed many more if not for a security guard who arrived on the floor within 12 minutes of the onset of the attack. Soon, a small group of Las Vegas police arrived. They organized themselves into an ad hoc SWAT team and began storming room 135. Tonight, for the first time, you'll hear details of the assault from the officers who carried it out. One week ago, just after 10 o'clock at night, 22,000 people became targets at a country music concert. Las Vegas detective Casey Clarkson was among them. The fire just starts hitting us, and you just hear... Hey, they're shooting right at us, guys. Everybody stay down. Stay down. I just remember, like, it was like white spark, like powder almost, like hitting the concrete, hitting the van. And I'm just watching this rounds hit all like right next to us. And I'm like, how is he so accurate? Bullets just raining down. On it's you. just raining down the whole time. And I just remember, I'm like, I'm just looking at my gun. I was like, I got a pistol in my hand. And this guy's shooting at me with an automatic rifle. You got grazed, but you, you have shrapnel. Yeah, I got neck. a piece of shrapnel in my neck hand. And I grabbed it for a second. And it was already just pulled blood dripping off my hand. I was like, oh, my goodness. And I wanted to try to do more. Uh, but my partner was worried because I was getting lightheaded at one point. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to stay, and I'm going to help as many people as I can. And You're doing this while your neck is bleeding. Yes, sir. North of the Manly Bay is coming out of a window. Las Vegas police released department body cam footage of the chaos on the ground as Stephen Paddock fired from above. So I hear probably Casey's radio traffic um, of, you know, he, we're taking fire, don't go down the boulevard. We're trying to see where the shots are coming from. If anyone can advise that they're coming from Mandalay. I just yelled to these guys, let's go, there's an active shooter. Sergeant Joshua Bitsko and Officer David Newton of the K-9 unit had been training dogs when they heard the call. So we jump in our cars and we drive, just hop on the freeway, and we were there probably within five minutes. Detective Matthew Donaldson was doing paperwork at headquarters. He sped nine miles to the Mandalay Bay. In the chaos, he had to run the last few blocks. His cowboy boots rubbed his feet raw. I took my boots off and just threw them in the casino. And it was slowing me down. I was faster barefoot, and I was going to be more effective barefoot. How did you end up being first responders? Are you assigned to be first responders, or you just got up and ran into the danger zone and got there first? Correct. We heard it over the radio. We heard, you know, active shooter, uh, multiple victims. We're told that security is taking fire from a suspect on the 29th floor and that we had other officers that were identifying the suspect was in room on the 32nd floor. So, so we're thinking multiple shooters at this point. The three officers zeroed in on the 32nd floor just after a hotel security guard named Jesus Campos encountered heavy fire. 200 rounds shot into the hallway from behind Stephen Paddock's door. 
Officers Bitsko and Newton ran to the stairs. Detective Donaldson and a SWAT officer, Levi Hancock, did too. This ad hoc group of officers didn't know what they would face, but they soon discovered Paddock had barricaded the stairwell door. He had screwed shut the door uh, with a piece of metal and some screws. In the stairwell. In the stairwell, going out to the hallway right by his door. He knew we'd be coming out that door to gain entry into his door. So he tried to barricade it as best he could. But thankfully, Levi had a pry bar and was able to easily pop that door. The canine cops, the detective, and the SWAT officer now were a team. So essentially, you became the SWAT team. Mm-hmm. Yes, pretty much. You need to be careful of these traffic. Are you coming up the stairwell or are you coming up the elevator? I heard on the radio calls that they were telling you to watch out. There could be booby traps. There's a room service cart with wires going on it underneath the uh, door. There was something black on top of the cart. So initially, I'm, you know, I'm thinking this is a booby trap. It's, it's going to explode. It, it looks suspicious to you. It's very suspicious. It turned out to be cameras on the food tray. What did you see? I could see the suspect's door was just riddled with uh, bullet holes coming out. It looked like Swiss cheese. He had the advantage. Yeah, he because he knew we were coming and where we were going to have to come through. We didn't know where he was going to be in that room. It's like a deadly game of hide and seek because when you're the one hiding, you always know where the person that's looking for you is before they see you. I remember thinking, man, I wish I had my dog with me because, you know, it's nice to have him lead the team. Levi Hancock, the SWAT team member, was armed with explosive charges to blow through doors. Around 11 p.m., the team began to execute a plan. They had heard no gunfire since reaching the hallway and had no idea what or who was behind the door. David Newton had a handheld ballistic shield. Now I'm standing out in front of this bullet-ridden door with nothing except for a shield that's, you know, I'm hoping would help a little bit. And uh, that was the point I said, uh, I was was praying that nothing goes off of phone-wise or radios or anything, because we were trying to be as quiet as we can, because we didn't want him to know we were out there, and start spraying at us. And I'm watching Levi put the charge on, and I'm like, hurry, 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 (laughs) but be quiet. (laughs) And uh, so then we got it hung, and then we retreated back into the stairwell to blow the door. We need to pop this and see if we get any type of response from this guy to see if he's in here or if he's actually moved out somewhere else. The audience on the 32nd floor, SWAT has explosive breach. Everyone in the hallway needs to move back. All units move back. Breach, breach, breach. So you blow the door open, and what do you hear? Were the fire alarms going off? Yes, yeah. the fire alarms were going off. So uh, the, the explosion set off the fire yes, alarms. Yes, correct. You enter the room. What do you see? An armory. An armory. So many guns, so many magazines, stacks and stacks of magazines everywhere, just in suitcases, all neatly stacked against pillars that were in the room, all stacked up, rifles placed all throughout, all kinds of monitors and electrical equipment he had in there. Um, It just looked like almost a gun store. Shell casings all over the floor. I could smell the uh, gunpowder that had, that had went off in the room. So we were tripping over guns, tripping over long guns inside. There were that, so many. That many? Yes. My initial scan of with coming in the room with my rifle is just seeing, uh, I'm seeing one male down, bleeding from the face. He was not a threat, kept going, kept going, kept going. 
said one male down, that was the shooter. Yes. Stephen Paddock. What were his wounds? I didn't see any apparent wounds to his head, but I did see a lot of blood that had come out of his mouth. Well, there was a, a bloody revolver, I think, nearby, nearby him that was on the ground, consistent with him shooting himself. What else did you see? I saw a few phones, um, laptops, a couple of laptops he had in there, uh, a lot of drills. Yeah, and drill bits. A lot of drills and, and drill bits, all kinds of tools. This was eerie. Very eerie. And the dust from the explosive breach, and then you got the flashing lights. I mean, it looks straight up like out of a movie, you know. Uh, I did notice a note on the nightstand near his shooting platform. I could see on it he had written the distance, the, the elevation he was on, the drop of what his bullet was going to be for, those, for the crowd. So he had had that written down and figured out so he would know where to shoot to hit his targets from there. What were the numbers? I'm just trying to... He, he, he had done calculations or he... Yeah, he had written... He must have done the calculations or gone online or something to figure it out of what his altitude was going to be on how high up he was, how far out the crowd was going to be, and what it, at that distance, what his drop of his bullet was going to be. Um, he hadn't written out the calculations. All he had was written out the final numbers uh, that were on the sheet. Wow. Did you go to the window? Did you look out? No. Because I know that SWAT had deployed snipers also, so I didn't want to put my silhouette in front of a window uh, because communication was still horrendous at that point. Detective Donaldson, you came in and went into the other room. Yes. What, what, what did you see? It was still very much in my brain. There's 50 other dudes in here somewhere. You know, so we were still clearing that room, the curtains, moving the curtains out of the way, making sure somebody wasn't hiding between the windows and the curtains. It was a very small bedroom, cleared the bathroom, cleared the shower, came back out. Um, they had to breach the other door on the other side. And then uh, once that scene was static, it was, it was essentially a crime scene. It was like, stop what you're doing, get out. It, it seems that he chose the tactically perfect and horrible spot for him to be able to rain down death on the people below. Yeah, he did his homework. Days of planning. Days of planning. He had toolboxes and power tools to run wires for his uh, surveillance system. For everything that he had, it took him days to finish. The sheriff was saying the other day that it, it, it almost appeared as though he thought he would be able to get out of this, that he had an escape plan. Did, did you see any evidence of that? I, from what I saw, it, I thought he was going to, his plan might have been to shoot it out with us because there was a, uh, a rifle on a bipod near the door um, and just the amount of ammunition and weapons he had, he could have held us off for hours. But at least if he was shooting at us, he wasn't shooting at Casey and all the victims down there at the concert. You know, before we were trained to form a perimeter and hope for the best. Now we're trained to gather up and go get it. Las Vegas Sheriff Joseph Lombardo traveled to Mumbai, India after the 2008 terrorist attacks that targeted numerous sites, including hotels across the city. Hundreds were killed and wounded. Lombardo learned a key lesson. 
officers should immediately react to stop a shooter at any cost. His department has made that a pillar of its training ever since. Was this the scenario, the, the horror you had trained for? Absolutely, because that's how we train them. And through all that experience and knowledge and training that we put together, um, a team was immediately formed, acting on their own without supervisory direction. Get a group of officers together as fast as you can um, and immediately address the threat to cease the action. No one knows when Paddock committed suicide, but the shooting stopped shortly after security guard Campos and the first of Sheriff Lombardo's officers arrived on the 32nd floor. Your guys got up there in like 12 minutes. 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Up on the 32nd floor. You know, and during a critical incident, 12 minutes is a long time, you know. Could you imagine being in a fist fight for 12 minutes? Um, it's a very long time. Um, but when you step back and you, you evaluate it after the fact, it's a very short period of time for the, to get the intelligence, figure out what the hell is going on, uh, put a team together, go up 32 floors and evaluate the situation. I think they prevented a thousand deaths. And I think it's important for the American public to understand that. Tonight, you're going to hear from a 41-year-old man who has remained largely unnoticed, even though he was one of the top decision-makers of the Trump campaign. His name is Brad Parscale. While Steve Bannon, Paul Manafort, and Kellyanne Conway are marquee names you're familiar with, Parscale was in the back room, operating as the campaign's secret weapon. He was hired to run the digital team, but over time came to oversee advertising, data collection, and much of the fundraising. As digital director, he's being drawn into the investigation of whether the campaign colluded with the Russians in the election. It's a charge he denies. He says he was focused on competing with the Clinton campaign's huge advantage in money and TV ads. What he decided to do was turn to social media, most importantly, to Facebook. I understood early that Facebook was how Donald Trump was going to win. Twitter is how he talked to the people. Facebook was going to be how he won. And Facebook is how he won. I think so. I mean, I think Donald Trump won. <laughs> but I think Facebook is, was the method. It was the highway in which his car drove on. And Brad Parscale was in the driver's seat. In the beginning of the campaign, he worked alone at home in San Antonio. But by the end, he had a 100 people reporting to him. One of his main jobs was to send out carefully tailored, low-cost digital ads to millions of people. And these were ads on Facebook? Facebook. We did them on Twitter, Google Search, other platforms. Facebook was the 500-pound gorilla, 80% of the budget kind of thing. Facebook's advertising technology helped President Obama in 2012. But today, Facebook offers something far more precise and sophisticated. While the president recently tweeted that Facebook was always anti-Trump, Parscale relied heavily on the company, particularly on its cutting-edge targeting tools. One of the best things Facebook did for you, I heard, was penetrate the rural vote. Yeah, so Facebook now lets you get to places, and places possibly that you would never go with TV ads. Now I can find you know, 15 people in the Florida panhandle that I would never buy a TV commercial for. And we took opportunities that I think the other side didn't. Like what? Well, we had our, their staff embedded inside our offices. What? Yeah, Facebook employees would show up 
for work every day in our offices. Whoa, wait a minute. Facebook employees showed up at the Trump headquarters? Google employees and Twitter employees. They were embedded in your campaign? I mean, they, they were there multiple days a week, three, four days a week, two days a week, What were they doing inside? Helping mean, teach us how to use their platform. Helping you get to, elected? I asked each one of them by email. I want to know every single secret button, click, technology you have. I want to know everything you would tell Hillary's campaign plus some. And I want your people here to sh- teach me how to use it. Inside? Yeah. I want them sitting right how next to How do you know us. they weren't Trojan horses? Because I'd ask them to be Republicans and I would talk to them. Oh, you only wanted Republicans? I wanted people who supported Donald Trump from their companies. And that's what you got? Yeah. They already have divisions set up that way. What do you mean? They already have groups of people in their political divisions that are Republican-Democrat. You're kidding. Yeah. They're businesses. They're publicly traded companies with stock price. Did Hillary's campaign have someone embedded? I, I heard that they didn't accept any of their offers. So you're saying Facebook and the others Offer. offered an embed and they said no? That's what I've heard. People in the Clinton campaign confirmed that the offer was made and turned down. Facebook told us in a statement, For candidates across the political spectrum, Facebook offers the same level of support in key moments to help campaigns understand how best to use the platform. And indeed, both campaigns used Facebook's technology extensively to reach out to potential voters. Parscale said the Trump campaign used the technology to micro-target on a scale never seen before and to customize their ads for individual voters. We would make hundreds of thousands of them. You'd make 100,000 ads? Programmatically. <gasps> so 100,000 different ads every day? Average day, 50,000, 60,000 ads. This was all automated. Changing language, words, colors, changing things, because certain people like a green button better than a blue button. Some people like the word donate or contribute. So how would you know? Let's say I like a green button. How do you know I only like a green because button? Because I give you the red blue buttons, you never click on them. These are just an assorted amount of ads. Parscale showed us how they tested, by sending out multiple versions of the same ad with only subtle differences. Here we have an American flag. Here we have a face of Hillary. Different colors, the blues, different messages above. So you'd send two identical ads with different colors? Maybe thousands. You'd send thousands of ads with different Different colors. colors? What it is is what can make people react? What catches their attention? Remember, there's so much noise on your phone, you know, or on your desktop. What is it that makes it go, I'm going to stop and look? To get people to stop and look, he crafted different messages for different people so that you only got ads about the issues you cared about most. He showed us three ads that looked alike. It's pretty much the identical design, the positive coloring, different message. This one is tax. This one is child care. This one is energy. Yeah, so they were all targeted to, to different users of whatever platform. In this case, it was Facebook. Sent it to different people, and it could be each other's next, day, next door neighbors, all in Ohio. This one person on at 11 Elm Street gets this one, and 13 Elm Street gets that one. Yep. Yep. Parscale took some heat for taking micro-targeting too far because he hired Cambridge Analytica. It's a company that uses so-called psychographics that micro-target ads based on personality. For instance, an extrovert would get one kind of message, a neurotic person another. It's controversial because of its Orwellian overtones. After Mr. Trump won, Cambridge Analytica said it was key to the victory. But Parscale insists he never used psychographics. He said it doesn't work. So you didn't use it because you didn't think it really worked, as opposed to you didn't use it because you thought it was wrong. 
that it's manipulative or sinister or something? No, I don't believe it's sinister. No? Okay, you just don't think it works. I just don't think it works. Parscale's title was Digital Director, but by the end of the campaign, his portfolio grew. He oversaw data collection, polling, advertising both online and on TV, and significantly digital fundraising. By adding donation buttons for people to click on in the online ads, he was able to bring in a record $240 million in small donations. How many presidential campaigns had you worked on before this one? Zero. Your wife has a wonderful expression about you being thrown into this. Yeah, she said that uh, I was thrown into the Super Bowl, never played a game, and won. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Young Republicans, you got to do thumbs up. It's made him a local hero back home in Kansas. He grew up in Topeka playing basketball. He's six foot eight. After briefly working at a tech company in California, he moved to San Antonio, Texas, and became a marketer. He taught himself to code, opened a small web design business, and went looking for customers. I started tapping shoulders at a bookstore and asking people if they needed a website when they were buying books on web design. You're hanging around at a bookstore? Yeah, Borders. You're hanging around at Borders and say, do you, can, do you need help? can you hire me? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So how did you get involved with the Trump people? I was sitting at IHOP, and I got an email. I was eating a ham and cheese omelet. I was. And I got an email, and I opened it up, and it says, um, this is Kathy Kay from the Trump Org. Um, can you please call me? Out of That's nowhere? It. Out of nowhere. That was six years ago. She was looking for someone to design a website for a Trump real estate project. Parscale bid lowest, got the job, and soon many more followed. Websites for Eric's Foundation, Melania's skincare line, the family's wineries. Then, in early 2015, came another life-changing email. It said, um, Donald Trump is thinking about running for president. We need a website in two days. So I wrote back. I said, yeah, I'll do it for $1,500. $1,500? Yeah. And by the end, it was $94 million. $94 million is what his company was paid, but much of it was spent on things like buying ads. Parscale learned very fast on the job with the help of the Republican National Committee. They had amassed a giant database to identify the issues people cared about and predict how nearly 200 million Americans would vote. One reason Parscale thinks President Trump won is because of an issue the RNC database honed in on that he says the Clinton campaign missed. Infrastructure. Infrastructure. It was voters in the Rust Belt that cared about their roads being rebuilt, their highways, their bridges. They felt like the world was coming. So I started making ads that would show the bridge crumbling. You know, that's micro-targeting there because I can find the 1,500 people in one town that care about infrastructure. Now, that might be a voter that normally votes Democrat. While he tried to persuade Democrats to vote for Mr. Trump, the campaign was accused in a Business Week article of trying to suppress the vote of idealistic white liberals, young women, and African Americans, a charge he denies. Did you micro-target by race? No, we did not. Never. Not at all. Nope. Did you post hateful images? I don't believe so. The candidate, Trump was never shy about pushing buttons, about pushing prejudices. He used what most people would consider 
um, offensive language sometimes? I don't think the math said that most people saw this as offensive. I think a small group of people saw this as offensive who have a lot of power. But you did mirror him. We mirrored certain things that he would say, mainly things he said in rallies. Many of the messages he sent out were what's known as dark ads. They're called dark because they're micro-targeted to individual users who are the only ones who see them. Unless they choose to share them, they disappear. Can you say anything you want in those dark ads? They're, they're no. really not transparent. No. I said something crazy in those. They would share a million times. It would be all over. So if you said something that appealed to racists... Oh, it would be everywhere. But some dark ads flew under the radar, like one sent out, we now know, by the Russians in their attempt to influence our election. These were separate from the posts the Russians reportedly sent of fake news stories that made Clinton look bad. The ads on divisive issues were spread using Facebook tools similar to the ones Parscale and the Clinton campaign used. Facebook has admitted that the Russians spent $100,000, at least $100,000, on ads to influence the U.S. campaign. Does that bother you? Yeah, I, w I would not want a foreign entity to meddle in our election. You know, government. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want that. I'm American. But the question is, did the Trump campaign collude with the Russians? And as the digital director, was Parscale involved? I think it's a joke. Like, at least for my part in it. Very few people think it's a joke. I think it's a joke when they involve myself, because I, I know my own activities. And um, I know the activities of this campaign. I was there. This is a farce. It's a farce that you colluded with the Russians. Yeah, it's just a joke. What about what happened on Twitter, which was flooded with pro-Trump tweets generated by robots or bots? Did you have a hand in generating I these had, bots? I had nothing to do with bots. I don't think bots work. You were called the king of the bots on Twitter. I know, it's ridiculous. It's just the craziest thing ever. No one on our team ever sat down with me and said, Brad, we should make bots. But if you see that there are hundreds of thousands of bots floating around with pro-Trump messages, somebody generated it, where would it come from? I would imagine there were people, everyday people in America who thought they were trying to help. I don't know. If the bots came from the Russians, would you know? No. Do you think it might have? No idea. Could it have? Could be from anybody in the world. The House Intelligence Committee looking into the Russian meddling has contacted Parscale and he's agreed to talk to them. I understand that part of these investigations that are going on is to understand how the Russians knew where to target their campaigns, their messages. They seem to know specifically where to go that were places that helped Trump. Yeah, first of all, I, 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 it's not very hard to figure out. Uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, <laughs> you know, I mean, the same, I, I think we've had the same swing states for decades. Parscale told us the Russian plot line is pushed by liberals who think they lost because he cheated. The irony, he says, is that it wasn't a foreign entity helping the campaign, but left-leaning American companies like Twitter, Google, and above all, Facebook. These social platforms were all invented by very liberal people on the West and East Coast, and we figure out how to use it to push conservative values. I don't think they ever thought that would happen. I would say the number one thing people come up to me is like, I just never thought Republicans would be the ones to figure out how to use all this. So if a liberal invents all this stuff, and a conservative in the Middle West 
figures out how, how to, to use, use it. it. And I think we use it better than anyone ever had in history. Last month, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced plans to make political ads on the site more transparent. As for Brad Parscale, he's already working on President Trump's 2020 re-election campaign. If you've eaten out in the past couple of decades, chances are a restaurateur named Danny Meyer has had a big impact on how your meal went. Since he opened his first restaurant in 1985, the innovations in food, service, and hospitality he's pioneered have been so widely copied, they've changed the way America dines out. Danny Meyer now runs 15 restaurants, and Shake Shack, the burger joint he opened in 2004, has become a global billion-dollar chain. But in his most daring innovation to date, Danny Meyer is eliminating tipping in his restaurants, a move which, if successful, may radically alter the way restaurants do business. Thousands of people line up every day to eat Danny Meyer's food. Here at City Field, the home of the New York Mets, some fans come early just to get a taste of Shake Shack. When we were there, the wait was almost an hour long. Have you been to your seat yet, or you just came no, straight no, in? No, 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 we came straight in. To, to beat the line? You have to. It's yeah. the only way you get a burger. Is it worth it? It's very good. Really? Yeah. Would you like one? Danny Meyer says Shake Shack burgers taste so good because he makes them with the same high-quality ingredients he uses in his expensive restaurants. But that still doesn't explain why people are willing to stand in those long lines. It's burgers, and it's fries, and it shakes. You haven't reinvented the wheel here. We are as sometimes as mystified as anybody as to what the magic of Shake Shack is. I think we know that this is fine casual. This is a new way of dining. Fine casual. Fine casual, which is marrying together the ethos and taste level of fine dining with the fast food experience. So you don't call it fast food? When did you ever go to Shake Shack and find the experience to be fast? This was such a historic, beautiful park. We went with Danny Meyer to New York City's Madison Square Park, where he created the first Shake Shack in 2004. The reason I haven't had a burger before from Shake Shack is because of the line. Instead of simply asking yourself, is the burger so good that you would choose to wait in line, I think the question is, what else are they getting out of the experience? And I think what fast food hijacked was the notion that people actually want to be with people. Their whole promise was basically, we are going to get you out of here so quickly you'll never have to see a person. In fact, we're even going to give you drive-through lines so you never have to get out of your car. And we're kind of doing the opposite of that. I'm going to get a uh, cheeseburger, a shack burger? Shack burger. Shack burger, sorry. And a uh, coffee milkshake and fries. There's something about the combination of the bun and the burger. So if you think about it, a hamburger is basically two things. It's the bun and the meat. And what's great about this bun is that it doesn't fight you as you're eating it. It absorbs. It doesn't juices. bite you? It doesn't fight your teeth. I think no. it's a mistake if the bun is too big and too hard. His attention to detail has made Meyer a leader in fast casual dining, or what he calls fine casual. Although not the largest, it is the fastest growing sector of the restaurant business. Meyer believes many consumers want good food delivered in less time and at less cost than at a full-service restaurant. And I think what fine casual is doing, if you're willing to give up waiters and waitresses and bartenders and reservations and tablecloths and flowers, we're going we're gonna to give you about 
of the quality that you would have gotten in a fine dining restaurant, we're going to save you about 80% of the money you'd spend in a fine dining restaurant. We're going to save you about 60% of the time. Fine dining is how Meyer started in the restaurant business more than 30 years ago. He opened his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe, in 1985 in what was then a seedy neighborhood in Lower Manhattan. Back then, people dined out less frequently, and expensive restaurants were often formal and intimidating. Danny Meyer had a different vision. I said, let's create a restaurant where you can feel great if you're dining alone. So we created a bar for dining at a time when you never got three-star food at a bar in New York City. That was the domain of coffee shops. I wanted to go to a restaurant where I could drink great wines by the glass. So I was just looking to break as many rules as I possibly could, but ultimately to create a restaurant that at the age of 27 would have been my favorite restaurant if only it had existed. Meyer has been fascinated with food since he was a child. He grew up in St. Louis, the son of an entrepreneur and an art gallery owner who loved entertaining and cooking. Do you think about food all the time? Constantly. Have you always? I think I have for whatever reason since I was a little kid. I go to the St. Louis Cardinal baseball games, and I was the guy that would get the whole hot dog, like everybody did. Mm. But I'd go to the relish station, and I'd put a little ketchup on this bite, a little mustard on this bite, a little onion here, a little pickle relish here, to see which I like better. I, I don't know how to ask this, but, I mean, were you a chubby kid if you're eating all the time? I actually was a chubby kid um, by the time I got to be 12 years old, 12, 13, 14. And that's kind of how I always felt thereafter. And... So it, it gives me great pleasure that today I can kind of eat as much as I want because I know how to exercise and I know how to balance it out. But it also probably put me in a position where I love seeing other people eat. Welcome here. I hope you've enjoyed your lunch. Today, Meyer's company, Union Square Hospitality Group, oversees 15 different restaurants, all but one in New York. They operate upscale eateries, casual bistros, a cocktail lounge, and a neighborhood bakery. How old's your baby? What they all have in common is Danny Meyer's philosophy of hospitality, which he pioneered but has since become a standard for the industry. Tell me if that's the best chocolate chip cookie you've ever had. Hospitality basically says that the most important business principle at work, way beyond that the food tastes great, and by the way, if the food doesn't taste great, you're never coming back here. But if the food tastes great, that alone does not assure that you will come back here. So what hospitality does is it adds the way we made you feel to how good the food tasted. So the experience of dining out for you is the most important thing? I think the experience of how you are made to feel is the most important thing. Good morning. Welcome. The key, he says, is to hire people who are intuitive and empathetic. He has more than 2,000 employees, and he trains them to pick up on the customer's cues. Everyone on Earth is walking around life wearing an invisible sign that says, make me feel important. And your job is to understand the size of the font of this invisible sign and how brightly it's lit. So make me feel important by leaving me alone. Make me feel important by letting me tell you everything I know about food. So it's our job to read that sign and to deliver the experience that that person needs. This is the reservation system. Yes. Are there any folks here that I'm supposed to be saying hello to today? We have a regular right here. In the restaurant business, profit margins are razor thin, and repeat customers are critical. 
Thanks for being nice here today. Meyer has made an art of making his customers feel welcome, tracking their likes and dislikes. I've also heard you say that you always identify the boss at the table. I didn't realize there was a boss at each table, but how do you do that? Well, there, there's no question in my mind that at every single table, there's somebody who's got the biggest agenda. If it's two people doing business, there's someone who's trying to sell something to somebody else. And I think that if you can figure that out early on in the meal and understand what is it going to take for the boss to leave happy, it could be make sure that someone else gets to pick the wine. You just got to pick up on those cues. Meyer's most controversial innovation is also his riskiest. He's trying to eliminate tipping to combat pay inequities between servers, whose tips have gone up as menu prices have increased, and those who work in the kitchen, who under most state laws can't share in gratuities. So the cooks, dishwashers, they don't get any part of the tip? They don't get any of it. And what I noticed after being a restaurateur for 30 years is that the growing disparity between what you can make in the dining room where tipping exists and what you can make in the kitchen, had the disparity had grown by 300%. Meyer has so far eliminated tipping in nine of his restaurants. He's increased the base pay of both servers and kitchen staff, and in some restaurants gives waiters a share of the weekly revenue. He's raised menu prices significantly, on average nearly 25%. But when the bill comes, there's no line for leaving a tip. You call it hospitality included. You don't say no tipping. So by saying hospitality included, it's basically saying, you see that price that it costs to get the chicken? That includes everything. That includes not only the guy that bought the chicken and the guy that cooked the chicken, but it also includes the person who served it to you and how they made you feel. So for the customer, in the end, is the bill the same? The bill, by the time you get your bill, whatever shock you did or didn't feel when you saw the menu prices should completely dissipate because you should say, that's exactly what it would have been if they hadn't had this new system. Plus, at the end of the meal, you don't have to deal with uh, the hassle of, of figuring out what to tip. That's absolutely true, and, and let's face it, the end of the meal tends to be when people have had more wine than the beginning of the meal, and sometimes people make honest mistakes. There's not a lot of restaurants, though, uh, who are following your lead. That's absolutely true, and that kind of reminds me of... In 1990, when I decided to eliminate smoking at Union Square Cafe... That was long before the law, actually. It was 12 years before it became law, and so for me... It's almost immaterial who's doing it besides us. What matters is that, that we're doing it. It could be that we're slightly ahead of our time, but we're in it to win this thing. Hi. How are you? Nice to see you. In December, Meyer reopened his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe, in a new location. It's another no-tipping restaurant. This pinch point here is the issue. Minutes before the first customers arrived, Meyer was still making final adjustments. One more four top and then a six top there. Determined to deliver a dining experience that would keep them coming back for more. Yay! My mind doesn't shut up and I'm constantly thinking about how could we do this better? How could we make this better? I don't want to ever open a restaurant that if it closed, people just wouldn't care. I will say, I mean, it's been now 24 hours since I had my first burger at Shake Shack and the coffee milkshake. I have been thinking about it 
more than I have thought about food in a long time. So all you need to know about me after all these questions uh-huh. is that nothing in the last 24 hours makes me happier than hearing what you just said. <laughs> last week, Shake Shack announced that it'll test a new concept with its latest restaurant opening in New York City this month. There'll be nobody taking orders or cash. Instead, customers will order and pay at touchscreen kiosks or from the Shake Shack mobile app. 50 seasons of 60 Minutes. This week from season one, the 8th of October, 1968, a Tuesday. Mike Wallace on our second broadcast interviewed Republican presidential candidate Richard Nixon. There's been so much talk in recent years of style and of charisma. No one suggests that either you or your opponent, Hubert Humphrey, have a good deal of it. Have you given no thought to this aspect of campaigning and of leading? Well, when style and charisma connotes the idea of uh, contriving of public relations, uh, I don't buy it at all. Let me, let me make this one point. Some, some public men are destined to be loved, and other public men are destined to be disliked. Uh, but the most important thing about a public man is not whether he's loved or disliked, but whether he's respected. And I hope to restore respect to the presidency uh, at all levels. Less than six years later, Richard Nixon, facing impeachment, resigned from office. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.